Hey Francis, do you like books? I tried one once, wasn't for me mate. Not enough pictures of fit brown birds. Never working with you again. But if you like fantasy, check out the Ripples in Reality series by J.S. Powell. They're absolutely brilliant and they have a five gold star rating on Amazon. I've heard of them. They're beautifully written and completely original. If you want a book that allows you to delve into different worlds and helps you escape the insanity of real life, then Ripples in Reality is for you. See, I know the word delve, so I do read books. Amazing. Just imagine books written in the style of Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Forgotten Realms, with an added pinch of Stargate. It's catnip for people like me. Virgins. She started a publishing company named Poppyfield Publishing and her novels are a massive hit with fans who want to read books that are a great read and are not woke. Book one is Shadow Step. And book two, Gather Shadows. She's currently writing book number three. I can't wait. I don't read books because I can talk to girls. Your mum doesn't count, mate. And by the way, JS Powell is a big supporter of Trigonometry. She is a moderator on our channel and we really appreciate all her help. You can find her books online at Amazon, Lulu.com and other bookseller websites. If you enjoy the books, please leave a review. The links are in the description. Hello and welcome to a very special live episode of Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. As you know, with the events in Ukraine, there's been a lot of discussion and debate about the history of that country, the history of the conflict and how we are where we are. And because of that, we are absolutely delighted to be joined today by a British historian who's written a number of books about that part of the world, about World War II, including this book, which I'm a huge fan of, The Devil's Alliance. Roger Morehouse, welcome to Trigonometry. But before we welcome Roger, just to let you know that it is a live episode and we will also be doing uh, Super Chats. You get your chance to ask questions to Roger during the break. So it'll be 50 minutes. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be asking your questions to Roger. So send us a Super Chat if you want that. Apologies, Roger. (laughs) That's all right. Welcome. Uh, So good to have you on the show. I've been meaning to get you on for a long time anyway, but the opportunity has now presented itself. Uh, Before we get into the subject we're going to be talking about, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are, what has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Uh, A twisted journey, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, uh, author and historian. Um, I studied in the early 90s at the um, School of Slavonic Studies in London. Um, Had a sort of fascination with Central European history particularly, which grew out of 89, which is ironic really, given what we're talking about now, because that's the sort of start, start point of where we're now potentially at the end of that mm. sort of, you know, 30-year piece. Mm. Um, so I was fascinated by the events of 89, and that sort of inspired me to go to university, studied that, and uh, it all carried on from there. Ended up researching with one of my professors, the great Norman Davies, uh, and then started writing on, in my own right um, as a freelance. Mm. Um, so I've written a few books. Now I, I do also lecture at uh, as a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Warsaw. Mm. And it's great to have you with us. Uh, you've uh, you've written a bunch of other books, including your latest book, which is called uh, First to Fight, which is about the invasion of Poland in 1939. Uh, and you've written quite a few books about the cooperation between the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany at yeah. that time, which I, I hear has has uh, it doesn't keep everybody happy, particularly on the eastern side of the world. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, particularly that one, The Devil's Alliance, which is um, the period of the Nazi-Soviet pact, mm. which is... Um, 
I think one of the most sort of crucial events in in World War Two, actually, and, mm-hmm. and that not, that German Soviet relationship is one of the most crucial great power relationships in the war. But it gets you know routinely ignored in the Western narrative. Um, we treat the Nazi Soviet pact essentially like it's the last sort of chess move in the run up to war, mm-hmm. but it's actually the opening. Uh, salvo in a two-year relationship between the two, between Moscow and Berlin, mm. which is very thoroughgoing. And there's mm. collaboration. There's like four economics treaties in that time. Um, they collaborate actively in the destruction of Poland uh, in 1939. Um, so there's it, it's a it's the forgotten great power relationship, mm. and that's the story I wanted to tell, which I think I did reasonably well. Very well. Um, the the Russian narrative currently, which has hardened a lot under Putin in the last few years, that came out in. I think 2014, um, at the time and then since the Russian narrative on the Nazi-Soviet pact has hardened a lot. And it's very uh, dismissive, really, of that, you know, particularly my effort to try and put it into a, into a proper context. Mm. They're still very fixed on this sort of the, the, the immediate Stalinist justification for it, mm. which came after 41, which was just to say that this was, you know, a defensive necessity that we knew hitler was going to attack us and we had to do this it really isn't that simple Mm. it's much more complex the reason i bring it up is the elements of that story that will become relevant when we start talking about the history of ukraine which is what i want to do now so prior to the invasion as you know vladimir putin made a speech in which he essentially made three uh big claims let's say Mm. the first of which was ukraine was created by vladimir lenin Mm. and uh allowed to be expanded by other communist leaders like nikita khrushchev and these are weak decisions made by weak leaders that resulted in creation of a fake country, Mm -hmm. essentially. That's the first argument. The second argument is that this led to the splitting up of the Russian people, the Russian nation, and a piece of the Russian nation was split off and glued together with pieces of Poland and pieces of Hungary, which is where we're going to come on to the the Nazi-Soviet pact, potentially. And the third argument is the eastward expansion of NATO since 1991 has is a threat to Russia. Mm. Uh, Russia is about to be attacked by initially by Ukraine with Western help. And this is Russia defending itself by sending peacekeeping forces mm. into the Donbass. Uh, we have seen uh, how that has played out over the last few days. So let's stick to the history first. Mm. What is the history of Ukraine? Sh- did, did it exist? Was it artificially created by Vladimir Lenin? Talk to us about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a whole crock of nonsense, I have to say, for a start. <laughs> I mean, the idea that, that Lenin sort of creates Ukraine. Um, what what Like all of these things, there's always a sort of a kernel of truth that mm-hmm. they then elaborate and run with, you know, at the expense of everything else. Um, and in this case, the sort of kernel of truth here is that the early days of the Soviet Union, um, of necessity, this, you know, the Soviet policy, particularly under Lenin, was very accommodating towards the nationalities of the Soviet Union, right? Particularly in the Caucasus, where you've got these sort of, you know, fractious Armenians and Azeris and the rest of it. Um, so, but, but elsewhere as well. So it's very, very accommodating because central power, you know, during the civil war was so weak, mm-hmm. um, after, you know, 1918 onwards after the revolution, um, you essentially had to make those concessions, but they made it, you know, as part of, you know, part of the sort of almost the moral argument of communism was that, we're going to be nice to the nationalities in the way that the Russian Empire wasn't. And a lot of people bought into that. Um, very quickly, at the end of the 1920s, once, once Stalin's got back in, or into power, after sort of 28 onwards, you know, that, this tolerance of, of uh, minority ideas and so on is, is completely crushed. Um, so anyone with sort of any ideas about you know, 
not necessarily separatism, but even uh, you know uh, a, a national policy in somewhere like Ukraine is is crushed, and that you can see that as one of the drivers behind the terror famine, the Holodomor of, mm. of the mm. early 1930s. Part of that, part of it's ideological, and part of it is also an, an effort to crush Ukrainian national ambition. Mm. Right. Um, so there's an element there where yes, they were you know encouraging of national identity and national ideas in places like Ukraine after the revolution. But as a tactic, um, but Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian you know, um, national identity goes way, way back. Mm. They go right back to sort of Kievan Rus, which actually predates Moscow, incidentally. Yes. So, you know, if you go right back to sort of 10th century Kievan Rus, um, you know, if, if Putin wants to play, you know, who's the senior partner games, then you know, Kiev wins hands down over Moscow. So, uh, it's, it's a it's a nonsense to say that Ukraine has has no sort of history beyond the 20th century. It's simple nonsense. Mm. It, it seems to me, and again, correct me if this is wrong, we don't understand Putin and his actions and his attitude to Ukraine because we don't understand the culture. We're not really taught about the Soviet Union. So his actions to us seem completely bizarre. Mm. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think I think there's two things here. I think what what... One aspect is, and I still rail about this quite a lot, I have done almost into the void up until last week, <laughs> um, is that we in the last, certainly 20 years since Putin's been in power, um, and I think during the period of the Soviet Union before that, we in the West have fallen into the trap of treating Russia and before that the Soviet Union um, as if it's a normal state, as if it's a rational actor on the world stage. Um, and they aren't. And we're, we're now seeing the truth of that, right? Mm. It behaves like a rogue state. It behaves like an Iran does. It's mm. ideologically driven and it behaves like Iran would do in the same way. Mm. So we have to get our heads around the idea that, that Putin now and, and Russia's behavior is that of a rogue state. Mm. And we're seeing that, right? That's now an e easier argument to make now than it was 10 days ago. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other, the other point is, and you, you touch on this, Francis, that, um, we don't know enough about Soviet history mm. in the West. That I think is is absolutely true. There's been some shifts, but I think you know that policy, whenever it was, that came in the 1990s with the education reform, where you've got you know this foregrounding of mm. of German history, Nazi history, with the Holocaust attached, mm. which is all well and good, but it leaves you know generations, certainly of British kids and others, you know, beyond as well, with a sort of an an imbalance in their knowledge of 20th century totalitarianism right mm. so and i think you can see that playing out with a lot of the footage and stuff and a lot of the memes on social media and so on and the comparisons made in opinion pieces in the last week that sort of juxtapose putin's actions with hitler's from 1938-39 mm. and there's an argument to be made there there are parallels it's quite a strong one but you know putin is playing out stalin's playbook mm. as much as he's playing out hitler's playbook i mean it's a totalitarian playbook right and if we knew more than just sort of, you know, Hitler and Nazi Germany collectively, then we could actually make some meaningful comparisons and meaningful comments. But we're kind of stuck in this world where the only point of reference that we have historically for the bad guy and the bad regime is Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, which is kind of rather, rather silly. Isn't it because we also had to get into bed with the Soviets in World War II in order to win? Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. So there was this shift. I mean, it's interesting that that you know, talk about the Nazi-Soviet pact, in that two-year period when they're collaborating, the West is pretty clear-eyed about what's going on. 
Mm. You know, they, Churchill in particular. Yeah, Churchill and others. But you know, you can look mm. at you know editorials and newspapers and you know across the Western world talking about this. Um, you know, it's referred to in one in one ed- editorial as Teutoslavia. You know, the, as Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union as one entity, all the way from um, you know the Rhine effectively to mm. to Vladivostok, mm. referring it to as one entity, which you know to a large extent it was. Mm. They they were collaborating. Um, and then you do have that shift with the Grand Alliance in 41 of necessity, right? And that necessitated then a huge kind of rehabilitation, a huge propaganda effort to rehabilitate Stalin in the eyes of the world. Mm. You know, he was no longer the monster. He was cuddly Uncle Joe who sat on the sofa <laughs> with Churchill. With church. yeah. And that that was kind of a necessity. But, the, you know, that essentially was what stuck. And I remember publicizing that book in you know 2014 2015 and and i was doing a public event and old chap stood up at the end um and he was obviously of the wartime generation he stood up and and said um how dare you talk about stalin like this so these these ideas are still out there mm-hmm. that stalin's somehow the, a good guy i mean i find that absolutely astonishing and it's particularly prevalent on the left who refused to condemn the soviet union Many times, yeah. despite knowing that there were atrocities happening. Yeah, this is one of those peculiarities, that, um, particularly of the Cold War, that yeah. you know that sympathy for not you didn't even have to be a card carrying communist, but mm. just sympathy on the left that socialism in the communist sense was seen as something that yeah it might have you know it might have broken a few skulls in Ukraine, mm. it might have you know made a few mistakes, but it was still something that was worth defending. So you you kind of caught yourself short of mm. criticizing even when it needed to be criticized mm. so that meant again that imbalance is just perpetuated that you've got all of this sort of study on nazi germany on the holocaust all of which is right and proper but it's not balanced out by by a, a concomitant study of mm. you know the holodomor for example you know mm. four million people died in the holodomor mm. well actually the I, there's some dispute about that Absolutely. even even the russian state duma i think Absolutely. recently acknowledged there were seven million yeah, I mean, we, that's, I mean, that's part of the point. We don't know how yeah. many died. It's yeah. huge. Mm. I mean, a, a sort of a, cent, a central guess figure is about 4 million, which is what I always give. But you're right. It, yeah. could be, it could be much higher. Well, let's come back to the present day, because I think that's what a lot of people watching this and listening to this will, will care about, and rightly so, of course, with what's happening in Ukraine now. One of the things that... So the way I see the media landscape shifting in the last few days even is initially nobody knew what the hell was going on. Mm. So Francis and I had a conversation, which I know you watched and which I laid out some of my thoughts as a sort of amateur historian who's a big history buff and pays a lot of attention to it and modern politics as well. But there is a competing argument, which I'd like us to talk about, which says that Russia is not an aggressive country Mm. under Vladimir Putin. It was not an aggressive country uh, until NATO started expanding eastwards. And apparently, some people argue, the verbal commitments were given to Russia, uh, to Mikhail Gorbachev in particular, that Russia would not expand, that NATO would not expand eastwards, Mm. uh, therefore sort of entering the strategic area of interest for Russia. And instead, what happened was in 1999, Poland, which has a small border with with Russia and a couple of other countries, were allowed to join NATO. And then in 2004, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, countries that sit right on the border of Russia and form a corridor between Kaliningrad and Russia, very strategically important mm-hmm. for Russia, were allowed to join. And over time, this was an irritant for Russia. Uh, this is the equivalent of you know Mexico entering a defensive alliance with the Soviet Union at the peak of the Cold War, people argue. 
Uh, and as a result of that and further encroachments, and now Ukraine sitting right on the border, part of the historical Russian sphere of influence, etc., uh, NATO is planning to, they've, they've said they would let uh, Ukraine and Georgia in. That's when Vladimir Putin went into Georgia, and now he's gone in Ukraine in 2014, when he could see that, you know, these people don't, the people who say this don't understand the history of modern Ukraine. This was not a neutral government. This was a Russian puppet who was about to be replaced with someone who was Mm pro-Western. And so when Vladimir Putin saw this, he saw a country on the border about to join NATO. He went in and he tried to wreck the country to prevent it from being a bulwark against Russia for NATO. What say you to that? I think the key phrase in all of that, I mean, there was a lot packaged in that, Mm. Constantine, but the key phrase in there was the idea of a Russian sphere of influence, Mm. which is kind of um, an item of faith in the Kremlin still. and and it isn't for the rest of the world, effectively, and certainly for the world that we're talking about, mm. Baltic States, Poland, and now Ukraine as well. Um, and this is where I think we come back to that sort of wider issue of where we are uh, in a sort of geopolitical sense. We've had a 30-year peace, effectively, from the Cold War. We've, we in the West, you know, arrogantly, naively, whatever, we thought the Cold War was over in 19, 1989, 91, mm. Soviet Union Places like Poland finally become independent. So, you know, 40 odd years after the end of the world, end of World War II, when uh, us British and the French went to war to, you know, supposedly defend Polish independence and integrity, that isn't actually restored until 1989, tragically. Mm. But again, 91, Baltic states re emerged as independent states and have flourished done brilliantly. So, you know, from the Western perspective, this is all good, mm. right? Um, Russia's independent. Russia is under this strong man, but you know, someone we can supposedly do business with, we thought. Um, Ukraine is somewhere in between independent state. And and we see that world as a positive development. Mm. These are free countries that are, you know, forging their way, making sovereign decisions, whether they join the EU like the Baltic mm. States did, or join NATO, like again, like the Baltic States did and, and Poland. Um, that to us is all, is all fine and normal. Mm. This mm-hmm. is how normal states behave, mm-hmm. right? From the Kremlin perspective, they're still thinking in terms of uh, a Russian sphere of influence that has been undermined, that has been damaged by that process. Mm. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, obviously, you know, they, in 1989, they lose that effective control over Eastern Europe, which they had through communism, through those satellite communist regimes. And then the, commun- the Soviet Union itself collapses. Um, for them, that is... You know, Putin said this, I think, in about 2000 or just before. He said the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical uh, catastrophe that has that happened in the 20th century, which is saying something. Right? <laughs> Bigger than World War II. Yeah, that's, that's, mm. that is Putin's mindset. The collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of his time, which is astonishing. Mm. And what Why he's would doing, he say that? Because it, it is Russia losing that position of influence, that mm. sphere of influence, you know, Russian power, Russia as a as a great power, um, whether it's riding on the coattails of of the Soviet Union, that was effectively Russia writ large, mm-hmm. right? Effectively, um, but now Russia is an independent state. It, you know, it's not enough for the Kremlin to be within just the borders of Russia as it is. That's 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 not acceptable. And Why not, Roger? Why not? Is, don't we live in this wonderful world of peace and trade, and, well, and we, we can all just exist within the borders that we have and just be, you know, unicorns and rainbows and, and all that? Well, yeah, we what? thought so. Exactly, we thought that was the world we lived in, and, yeah. and it's not a it's not a ridiculous assumption, really. Mm. 
um, it's a question of, you know, perspective for the Western world. It's about, you know, sovereign nations and trading and mm. all of that, which is all, you know, that's, that's the world we live in. And we're, we're quite happy with that. Mm. But you have to understand that from a Soviet, uh, from a Russian perspective, you know, Freudian slip there, but from a Russian perspective, that's completely anathema. That's not the way the world works. The world works in terms of sphere, spheres of influence. And particularly, you know, the example of Ukraine is absolutely salient here. Right, you can kind of justify letting go of the Baltic states, right? Mm. Because all right, they've got Russian minorities, but they're Lithuanians, they're mm. Balts, they're you know they're mm. La- Latvians, Estonians. You know, they were never really with us mm. from a from a Kremlin perspective. Um, and letting them go was probably you know easier than trying to keep hold of them in 1991. Um, but letting Ukraine go is unthinkable, and it goes back to what you said earlier on about this idea of. You know, Russian nationalism isn't just Russia in its, you know, modern boundaries. It, it implies a, a, a sort of claim to Ukraine. It, it has this sort of greater Russian idea to Ukraine, also to Belarus. Mm-hmm. So to, to let one of those two go is absolutely not acceptable from a Kremlin perspective. Um, and this is where, you know, Belarus, the problem with Belarus, from again, mm-hmm. from a Kremlin perspective, has kind of been solved, right? You had that um, the election of last year, Lukashenko's still there, you know, de- defying um, a lost election. Um, he's clamped down, thrown out those that, you know, legitimately should be the government. Um, Tsiyanukskaya has done a brilliant job of going around the world and getting handshakes and photo ops with, with the rest of the world. I fear that's probably game over for Belarus, mm. for, for the foreseeable. Um, so that, from a Kremlin's perspective, is Belarus problem solved. But Ukraine was edging towards some sort of, you know, looking westward increasingly, democratic, mm. reasonably successful, functioning. These are all things that the Kremlin can't accept. But wasn't 2014 a coup supported by the CIA, I hear? I, think, I mean, this is just... A, this is just it, there, there's that, that great uh, line, um, Kremlin 101 or Dictator 101, is, is kind of accuse your enemy of what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great example of this. You know, I, I, I don't see um, West, the idea of Western meddling. Mm. It just doesn't really happen. We don't have, we, we don't have the sort of the, the brain power and the will. <laughs> we just don't. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's rather ridiculous. And I think, you know, that, that is a, a great example. NATO, of course, is, is a defensive alliance. Mm. You know, uh, cre- uh, the Kremlin at the moment is doing a great job of, of advertising for NATO, mm. right? You can see the Finns and the Swedes are now thinking about. It. They're also being berated by by uh, Putin, Putin and saying, mm. you know, you, you, if you watch it, if you you apply, there'll be trouble. But they probably will, and why wouldn't they, given mm. the current situation? So, if you offered a NATO membership to Ukraine now, they'd have your arm off. Mm. You know, so he's the greatest recruiting sergeant for NATO membership that you could imagine. So it's it's a response to him. It's not. You know, he's not responding to any sort of provocation. NATO is a, re- is a response to Russia. I'm going to make what could be seen as a cross illusion, but I think it's got merit. It sounds like Russia's having a sort of weird midlife crisis where they're looking back at their, you know, at their, uh, at their youth or their earlier times going, this is great. Powerful. Those were the days. Yeah, those yeah. were the days. This was great. Powerful. Stop being racist. <laughs> Russophobic, mate. Yeah. And they were looking back at the days and the halcyon days of the Soviet Union where they were great and powerful. They, they, they're looking at their place in the world. They're feeling diminished, and they want to impose themselves once again. 
despite yeah, the fact a, yeah. that the world's moved on. I think there's a lot of that. Um, and you can see, you know, to, to, to coin a phrase, you know, Putin is, is wanting to make Russia great again. That's, mm. the, you know, that, that's, that's where he's heading. And you can see the same thing. Um, historically, you can see the same drivers in Nazi Germany, mm. you know, because that was a great power, humiliated at the end of the First World War. Um, populations outside of its mm. of its redrawn frontiers. Taken so, away from it. Taken mm. away, you mm. know, um, national humiliation. And then you've got the great leader who comes in and restores, you know, Germans' faith in themselves and mm. res- restores its position in the world. Um, and then starts going after these irredenta and these mm. disputed territories. So there's there's definite sort of parallels there. Um, which is kind of, you know, from our perspective now, mm. uh, as of last week, are, are profoundly worrying. I'm not, I'm not going to go down the route of saying this is World War Three, but this is certainly, I think, Cold War Two. Mm. Mm. Well, a hundred percent. So the one thing that I think differentiates Hitler from, from I nearly said Stalin, from Putin, uh, mm. is he doesn't seem to have a racial animus. Yeah. It not, does he? not in that conventional, not in the sort of conventional, you know, rabid sense that Hitler did. Um, I think Putin has, I mean, I, I, in terms of ideology, I would have said, I think up until probably a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that Putin is kind of, doesn't really have an ideological angle. Quite. Um, apart from this sort of, um, you know, robber capitalism, kleptocracy that he runs. Um, and a an aggravated sense of, of, of Russian nationalism, right? Mm. Um, but then that, what happened last week, kind of, I think, throws that idea that he's a rational actor out of the window mm. because that is not that's not the behavior behavior of a rational politician. Now he was getting what he wanted while saber rattling against Ukraine, but you know he was getting the Western politicians flying to Moscow and elsewhere, mm. you know, and talking about redrawing the, the sort of uh, security structure in, in Europe. And right. he was already strangling Ukraine just by making sure that Western, com- Western companies were leaving or they weren't going and investing there. He was already doing what he wanted to do, mm. which was making sure that he had Ukraine essentially by the balls mm. and it wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, so, which is why up until Thursday last week, like many others, I thought well, he'd be mad to invade. He's not going to invade. It's, it would be ridiculous. And then of course he invades. So, this is where we have to start thinking that actually there are some ideological drivers behind this mm. that um, we can collectively weren't really seeing. And this is where I think that, you know, there's an element here where some of those thinkers around the Kremlin um, are pretty close to what you could call kind of Russian fascism. Mm. Uh, and this is where it gets much, much darker. Um and yeah, it doesn't have necessarily that racial element, but it is certainly a sort of a greater Russian mm. ambition, not uniting all the Russian people in one state, that sort of thing, um, which is, you know, is is sort of essentially one of the sort of ambitions of, of classical fascism, mm-hmm. you know, is ethno-nationalism. So you, you're on the same path. There. The thing that's worrying what you say about that, you think, well, then is another world war inevitable? Because if he's going to carry on encroaching, once he's locked down Ukraine, he'll probably think, that is it then going to be right? I've got what I want from here. Yeah. But actually, those countries over there, they were once part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. They should be part of Russia. Let's go. Well, this is, um, I would preface anything I say by, again, reiterating that I didn't think he'd invade last week. So any, any of my predictions. <laughs> I did. Let me answer fairly, that question. <laughs> fairly worthless. Um, but 
my uh, my gut feeling on this is that you know as i've just said there's this strong element of russian ethno-nationalism mm. which from a um you can see from putin's speech last week very strongly includes the ukrainians and belarusians in that mm. in that sphere right? uh-huh. that's the yeah. world he's looking to reunite right. um by definition really that means you don't want the baltic states you don't want to go into poland and so on plus baltic states poland they're all nato members so that would be a, a direct slap in the face for nato nato would be obliged to respond um so that would be a massive massive step further so i can see you know as i said that the belarusian problem is or belarus problem has kind of been solved from a kremlin perspective mm. and he's in the process of very bloodily and brutally solving the ukrainian problem that was even the phrase that was used in, oh. in uh, or a uh, uh, speech from last week um which is rather clumsy formulation historically speaking solving the uh, oh. ukrainian problem um so to my mind i think that that sh- that would be job done but it does mean from a western perspective it means effectively that you know ukraine is lost which is which is a tragedy mm. um because that we need to collectively stand up and uh, I think, defend that freedom, which I've been amazed at what the West has done in the last week. I think I've been astonished. Me too, actually. Uh, and, and positively, absolutely positive. Yes, yeah, same. Um, how much more we can do, I don't know. That's a question mm. for, the, for the strategists and the field marshals. Roger, let's come back to the history a little bit because we talked about the comparison with Hitler's expansion yeah. following the humiliation of Germany. And this is what I think a lot of sort of 22-year-olds on Twitter who are now experts on geopolitics don't, don't seem to understand is that I would argue, and I'm, I, I've got to be very careful about the way I phrase this, so I'm going to preface this by using a bit of identity politics by saying that my great-grandfather died fighting Nazis, probably died in the Holocaust, Jewish, blah, 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 blah. But Hitler had quite legitimate reasons from his perspective mm-hmm. to demand the Sudetenland. Mm-hmm. to demand the Anschluss, to demand all of that. Like, there were Germans in the Sudetenland and they were being badly treated, right? Yeah. Um... The reason I bring it up is, what I'm trying to get at is, like, people like Putin and who others, they will make claims that have a kernel of truth. Yeah. It does not mean that the claim is true. Yeah. I think you, I think you can actually draw a very close comparison between the Sudetenland issue in 1938 yeah. and... Donetsk and Luhansk. Quite. Now, right? Mm. Uh, or prior to last week. Um, to a large extent, they're manufactured crises mm. that you then are obliged to find mm. a solution for. Um, the Sudetenland uh, problem, as it were, was, um, you know, ethnic Germans within that sort of fringe of Bohemian Mora- Moravia, mm. which is now Czech Republic, um, that bordered onto Germany. Mm. But actually, all of their cultural references they spoke german or rest of the course but all of their cultural references of the sudeten germans went southwards went towards austria mm. so they a lot of them didn't feel themselves to be germans mm. they felt themselves still to be austrians because that was you know where they'd been marooned from in 1918 at the end of the first world war um 
So there's there's a lot of diversity of opinion. Yes, they spoke German. This is this is like Donetsk mm-hmm. and Luhansk, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, they spoke German. It didn't necessarily mean they wanted to go and join Berlin because mm-hmm. they they saw that as you know that was Protestant country. Those were the the Prussians, as they used to call them. Mm-hmm. We they were all sort of uh, Catholic and they were very South German, more in common with Austria, more in common with common with Bavaria. So there were sort of profound differences. Um, and what you have is. Yes, you know they're not well treated within within uh, pre-war Czechoslovakia, mm. um, but you've got the sort of creation of a problem that that, that Stalin, uh, Stalin, Hitler then mm. um, goes in and solves with the with the annexation. Um, so it's very analogous to Donetsk and Luhansk at, mm. at the moment, mm. um, or up until last week. Mm. And what do you make of the the the, the sort of commensurate claims that uh, Russia is making that? Uh, there's a genocide happening in the Donbass. Uh, I mean, I, I find it difficult to entertain this conversation because I have family and friends who, mm. who live there who talk about it. Like, but but you are here to give an objective opinion about it. So, what do you make of the claims that there's been a genocide? Thousands of ethnic Russians are being annihilated every day. And yeah, I mean, as, uh, as far as I can tell, there's been there's absolutely no proof of that. Right? I mean, I haven't seen any proof anywhere, uh, serious proof. Um, the problem you have with this is that, you know, you look back again to the sort of um, the, the halcyon days of the European dictators in the 1930s and 40s. They're constantly inventing problems like these that mm. then require mm. a solution. Um, so, and again, sort of false flag operations, which we saw last week as well, you know, that ridiculous false flag. Again, I think it was in Donetsk, Oblast, wasn't it? There was, um, you know, some burnt out truck with a body in it that, you know, the, the skull of which had patently been used for a, had already been autopsied, and they were saying this was a, a result of Ukrainian violence against Russians. I mean, this is the clumsiest sort of false flag you could possibly imagine, or you know, supposed provocation. This is what these regimes do. It's part of the playbook, and this is why, actually, you know, I'm, I'm always wary of this idea of um, you know history as a sort of a uh, a teacher in a way, you know, because we're, we're constantly, I think to some extent, abusing history mm. in the Western world. But this is a good example where a good knowledge of that period mm. and how these regimes mm. functioned. As a matter of course, you look at the Gleiwitz incident in 1939, right. you know, the run-up to the, the night before the German invasion. You look at the Mylila well, incident. Hold, hold the on. Right, sorry to, I'm so sorry to interrupt. No one knows in the West, in my experience, because I try to talk to people about this Gleiwitz incident. About Gleiwitz. So, so most people in the West think that World War II started when Germany invaded Poland. Yeah. What they don't know is World War II started, if the Nazis had won, the history books would read, yeah. when Poland invaded Germany. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, the night before. So that the, um, the German invasion of Poland, of course, is dawn on the 1st of September. The night before, 31st of August, um, there is a raid on a German radio station in the town of Gleiwitz, which was about five kilometers from the Polish border. It was in Germany. Mm-hmm. About five five kilometers from the Polish border. It's now Gliwice in southwestern Poland, um, and a group of about eight men in civils, so not in military uniform, burst into this radio station, fire a couple of shots into the air, um, tie up the station personnel who are Germans, of course, put them in the cellar, and then start to try and broadcast an incendiary message in Polish. One of them spoke spoke Polish. Which basically said, you know, um, we're the advance guard. We're waiting for the uh, for Polish forces, and we're advancing on Berlin, and you know, down with Hitler and down with Nazism. Um, of course, they're all SS men, right? Um, 
they they don't actually manage to to broadcast their message. They cock it up. Hmm. Um, you get a lot of white noise. Apparently, they, apparently there was nine seconds of the message was heard, and then after that it was white noise. And nobody knows why. Um, anyway, they don't know that. They think they've done their job. They leave the site and they leave one guy, a rather unfortunate Pole who had been a Polish agitator in German Upper Silesia called Franciszek Honiok. And he's left behind and shot. He'd already been drugged and he's left, uh, shot and left behind as, a, as, you know, bloody proof that this was a Polish operation, mm. right? Um, and then, of course, the following day, if you jump forward to nine o'clock the following day, Hitler makes a speech in front of the Reichstag, German parliament, um, in Berlin, where he says, you know, we are fighting back mm. since 5.45. So he's weaponizing that, that spurious false flag operation from the previous night. Mm. This was... It was an idea that came from Himmler and Heydrich, apparently. Um, Soviet Union did the same in Finland? Soviet Union did the same in Finland, I was going to say. So the Mainila incident in mm. Finland, 30th of November 1939, uh, the Red Army shells its own border post, um, kills about you know three or four Red Army men, mm. um, shells its own border post, and then blames the Finns, and then invades Finland in response. I mean, this is how totalitarian powers uh, behave. And I think what's fascinating is that back in the day, in 39 and beyond, you know, I mean, Gulf of Tonkin is another one in the 1960s, not just totalitarians do this. Um, but back in the day, because of how broadcasting works and how information gathering works and the rest of it, you know, the, the outside world didn't know the truth, mm. right? So you kind of left with just accepting or not the, the official account, right? Mm. But now with you know, social media and the rest of it, which is a very, very democratic form of communication. It's, it's very, very bottom up. You know, you can have people on the ground, like that example last week that I that I mentioned, you can have people on the ground filming it and going, this doesn't look like an ordinary corpse. This is actually, this has already been autopsied. What's mm-hmm. it doing here? And immediately the narrative kind of, it, it, it's, it's, it's destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. So that might have worked. That might still work for domestic Russian consumption. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm if they showed that on, on Russian TV and said, you know, this is proof that these the Ukrainians are doing dastardly things, then maybe that works in Russia. It just doesn't work for the outside world anymore. That's the difference. Mm. And the worrying thing is, is that we talk about Hitler and we're making these comparisons. And the more comparisons there are, and the more specific comparisons there are, the more worried and anxious I become. And then you think to yourself that on top of that, Russia's got, isn't it the highest amount of nuclear weapons mm. or the second highest amount compared to the United States? At least Hitler didn't have nukes. Yeah, true. Um, that is the sort of great sort of spectre hanging over all of this. And I mean, this idea, um, if we accept, as I kind of described earlier on, if we accept that Putin is motivated more by ideology than we've traditionally thought like as i said we just thought he was a russian nationalist and a kleptocrat right um, but if there's more going on than that um more ideological kind of background if you like then i don't know if that makes uh the prospect of uh you know him pressing the button more or less uh possible it's certainly worrying um i'd still you know cling to the hope that he's not that mad and his ideology isn't that ridiculous that it would that it would drive him to that but as i said i didn't think he would invade ukraine in the first place well let me let me make francis slightly more depressed than he already is by saying i've spent the last few days 
uh, I'm grateful to be able to speak Russian to understand the, the country, having lived there and being mm. from there, etc. Watching Russian television, mm. uh, state television, and and for people who are w- listening to us, they should understand Russia isn't like Britain or in America in the like we think everyone in in Britain's on Twitter, they're not, but in Russia the overwhelming majority of people get their news from mainstream television in a way that people in this country no longer do. I've been shocked by how religious it is. Mm-hmm. Religion never used to get talked about. And Putin mentioned the religious split in the Ukrainian and Russian churches mm-hmm. in his speech. There is a very clear signaling that there's a religious element to all mm-hmm. of this. And that worries me tremendously, I have to say, because, you know, it becomes like a crusade. Right, and if you're going to press a button to kill to, to kill everyone in the world, there's there's we know that ideologically speaking, there's a very good way of yeah. you know doing that. But let's come back to a bit more sort of historical conversation. I'm, I'm putting arguments to you that I see people out there putting, which just boggles my mind. So Ukraine is a country that in uh, elected uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, who's a Jewish comedian president, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's full of Nazis, apparently, Roger. Yeah. Again, Everyone's a Nazi. Now, look, there's some things we should address because in Western Ukraine, there is a history of fascism mm-hmm. uh, and there were some people who collaborated with the Germans and not only for pure convenience, they collaborated with the Germans because they were fascists. Mm-hmm. They they believed in it. That was their ideology. Stepan Bandera, undoubtedly a fascist. There's no question. And there's some people in Ukraine who want to deny that. And there's some mistakes that have been made about sort of trying to clean up his past, uh, which I, I think was a mistake. And there's a battalion. There's off battalion. Yep which is full of neo-Nazis in Ukraine. So how do we square all of that? How do we square that circle? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that to, to some extent, that sort of, you know, the um, private sector and the, mm. the Azov Battalion and so on, um, I think to some extent that tends to happen um, when you have a state, you know, being invaded by its neighbor. It's kind of almost a, you mm. know, it's a natural reaction. We would have probably, a, uh, if we were invaded by by Scotland, we'd have a, a, a battalion of EDL boys up there, you know, doing the same thing and waving flags mm. and saying unacceptable things. Mm. So it, to some extent that, again, it's a reaction to circumstances. Mm. And again, I mean, every country has that in it. I mean, and it, it, it's part of the spectrum of politics. We mm. can not like it, but it's there. Mm. Right? It doesn't mean that the entire country is mm. is run by and, and, you know, dominated by Nazis. It's a ridiculous extrapolation. So I think, you know, in, in the modern sense, I think, you know, yes, it's there. But, you know, to say that that's how it, how the country is run and that's who Zelensky is, is nonsense. Um, historically, it's, I mean, is is more complicated. And you mentioned Bandera. Um, we have to bear in mind, I agree with what you say, actually, about Bandera and, and the, the, the way Ukraine in groping its way towards the symbols of nationalism and, and creating its nation and its national myth and so on, which every every nation has to mm. do. You know, you have to sort of find your heroes and mm. so on. And you have to create a usable myth mm. of your of your existence, which actually incidentally what's going on now, brutal and bloody and murderous though, is is a brilliant foundation myth for yeah. a future Ukraine. Yeah. You know, and there will be statues of Zelensky in a future Ukraine, without question. Mm. Um, so this is a little bit, to my mind, the, the echo here is a little bit of the Warsaw Rising in 1944, which I'm not, I don't want to damn and sort of prejudge what's going on in Ukraine, but was ultimately doomed. But as a, a brilliant kind of uprising against German rule and incidentally against the, the possibility of Russian rule, Soviet rule, um, but was doomed and was betrayed mm-hmm. and, you know, hundreds of thousands killed. Um, 
but as a sort of foundation myth for the democratic Poland that emerges in 89. Mm. You know, it's tremendously powerful. And I think you're, you're kind of seeing an analogous situation here as well. I mean, hopefully it's not going to be another 40 years, mm. um, but you're seeing an, an analogous situation. So every country needs to find its, you know, usable history. And I think that's reaching for Bandera is profoundly questionable. Yes. And I think wrongheaded. Yeah. Right. Um, Same with banning the Russian, not banning, but not using Russian language in official documents. Yeah, that doesn't re- help. Mis- there's no question that in yeah. the desire to build the nation, there have been mistakes made. I, absolutely. No question absolutely. about that. Yeah. And that that's not the same as what people are saying. So I'm a Russian speaker. I don't speak a word of Ukrainian. My wife is a, she speaks Ukrainian, but she's a Russian speaking Ukrainian. Yeah. Most of my family are Russian speaking Ukrainians. Some pro-Russian, by the way, some pro-Ukrainian. Not a single person would claim to have ever been discriminated against yeah. for being a Russian speaker or of Russian ethnicity in Ukraine. Yeah. That's that's just a lie. Now, mistakes have been made. I agree. And glorifying people like Stepan Bandera was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I'm not to defend Bandera, but I think as well, we have to, again, there's a common problem is to look back at the sort of maelstrom of Central Europe mm. in 1942-43, mm. right? The height of the Holocaust, the height of, you know, various... You know, Central Europe is a mess in that period. You know, they're, they're sort of pockets of, of, of Polish occupation or Polish populations mm. still there, you know, in, in a Ukrainian sea and vice versa. It's all mixed up. And then Jewish populations all over that are being slaughtered, mm. right? Um, and Bandera effectively hitches his wagon to the Germans because he thinks he might be able to create some sort of Ukrainian mm. statelet out of it. He might be able to, you know, ride the, tar- the Nazi tiger to some form of Ukrainian statehood right mm. and he misjudges it right but um, roger and he ends up in saxonhausen he does so. but i'm sorry to interrupt but i just want everyone to be clear about this he was a fascist yeah it's not that he saw an opportunity and so he went oh let's just join these guys i know they're bad but it's okay no no he was a fascist yeah he he, he wanted the same thing in ukraine that they were doing in germany yeah and he wanted to eliminate the jews he wanted to eliminate the poles Right, that that was the ideology. This is not a good person no, no, to, to be making international hero. But I think there's a there's a, a peril in here. I agree with all of that, Constantine. But there's a peril here of looking back and judging people in forty two, forty three, mm. in in that absolute maelstrom of war mm. in Central Europe, which is unbelievably brutal. Yeah, mm. uh, and judging them by mod by our sort of yeah. comfortable. Oh, I'm not judging him. I'm no. judging the people who've tried yeah. to make him into a national yeah. hero since. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay. I was going to say, the thing that I find, because obviously with your history and your knowledge of the region, I'm looking at this very much through through the eyes of a complete layman. The thing that I find worrying is that you're making parallels again and again with World War II, the beginning of the World War. And for somebody who doesn't know a lot about World War II history, a lot of it is to do, I think, with complacency, complacency with people like Chamberlain, who don't mm. realise the rising threat of Nazi Germany, who don't understand what they're dealing with with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Are the same mistakes being made again with Putin and his party and Russia in general? I think we have been remarkably complacent mm. in dealing with uh, Putin and Russia, um, particularly since... Uh, the turn of about 10 years ago. Um, I mean, the, the invasion of Georgia was 2008. Mm-hmm. We should really have seen the writing on the wall then. Um, 
prior to that, maybe it's acceptable that you could you could have said, you know, Putin's a tough guy, but he's okay, and you know, he's for stability and the rest of it. I mean, he comes to power in two two thousand, kind of promising Russians, you know, stability and prosper, prosperity and all the all the Western things that that they wanted, mm. right? And look where he's taken them twenty two years later. Mm. Um, but we should have seen the writing on the walls certainly two thousand eight. If failing that, um, with the um, Euromaidan in in 2013-14 um, we've just been too slow we've mm. been too slow in actually recognising that threat there have been enough voices um, I mean I'm a small voice but I've, I've been sort of consistently critical and it comes through in my books as well mm. you know I do see I do see the Soviet Union and by extension mm. Russia as a sort of malevolent player mm. in the region um, and that's sort of fed by the history, and it's just plain to see. And once you've seen it, it's one of those things you can you can't unsee mm. effectively. Um, there have been a few, you know, statesmen of, the, of that of that um, region. There have been a few um, journalists that specialise in that in that sort of um, region. People like Edward Lucas has been brilliant on this mm. and consistent on this all the way through. So there have been voices, but they just tend to get dismissed, and people mm. say, "Well, you're just being Russophobic." <laughs> you know, do, we can do business. It's the you know the Germans with their wonderful phrase. They had this wonderful phrase up until last week, of Wandel durch Handel, which means change through trade. Mm. Right. Mm. So we'll trade with the we'll do trade with the, with the Russians, and but in that way, by showing them the benefits of being part of the club, we will change them for the better. Right. That has crashed and burned as of last Thursday. Mm. But isn't there also... Francis, not- before you jump in, I'm really sorry. Just a reminder, guys, everybody, if you want to ask questions of Roger or of us, send in a super chat, send in a PayPal. Our team will collate them. And after we have a break in a few minutes, we'll come back and answer all those questions. Sorry, carry on. No, it's cool. We're, we're sitting here in London. Let's be honest. A lot of people in London have got very rich, very fat of Russian money. A lot of it incredibly, incredibly dodgy. Mm. Wasn't it as well... It wasn't in a lot of people's best interest, dare I say, a lot of politicians to criticise Putin, to criticise Russia when we had all that money being funnelled into the city yeah. of London. Yeah, I think I think there's a danger here of kind of seeing patterns that are, weren't necessarily apparent. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, I mean, some people were saying that. Like I mentioned Ed Lucas; he was yeah. saying that all the way through. Uh, it's been consistent, but. Um, you know, it's all very well in, re- in retrospect to sort of pull these things up. Um, mm. Hold on, Roger. Come on. This guy has poisoned people on the streets, yeah, of, the streets of the country. He's killing off his political opponents. He's exiled anyone. Like, these are just, I'm putting the counter argument, right? Yeah. He's he's destroyed any sort of democratic opposition in Russia, whatever. He's shut down every satirical program that they exist. Yeah. He's now shut down every independent media channel in Russia as well. Like, now, here's the question really is, could we have done anything? That's a different conversation, right? Because can you do some of the things that we're now doing because he poisoned one guy in Salisbury? I think I think that should have been a shift. I think Salisbury should have been a shift that we that we actually you know put into put into place meaningful sanctions at that point, which I don't think we did. Over one guy. This is the yeah, paralysis of is, the West. Well, it is, but it's also you know that using chemical weapons effectively you know on foreign soil is 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 astonishing <laughs> astonishing thing to have done and that i you know that it was good to see at the time i you know remember theresa may being very firm in the house of commons but i don't remember what followed on from that i don't think there was much mm. in the way of real sanctions and 
by way of punishment. So there's a lot of words, not much action. Um, so that I think should have been a turning point. But but to address the, the you know the previous point about that sort of infiltration of mm. Russian money, uh, of of influence, all of that, I think that's something that um, we have to be careful now that we don't sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm. Because what the Western model is built on is you know rule of law and and, and mm. property rights and all that sort of mm. thing. So in the sort of rush to punish you know, um, Russian oligarchs and the rest of it, which I'm fully on board with, mm. we still have to make sure that we go down the right pro- right routes and the right processes and it's, mm. and it's above board. Because, you know, if we end up behaving like, mm. uh, you know, a, a Russian autocrat and just throwing people out and, and doing things mm. extra legally, mm. then we're no better than they are. So I think we do have to make sure that our response is is legal. Anything that screws over Chelsea Football Club, mate, is it's all right. It's got to be good. It's, it's a good thing. <laughs> well, on that happy note, Roger, we're going to get some questions from our audience and we've got a bunch of other things that we want to ask you as well. Uh, but we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes, guys. Uh, send in your Super Chat, send in your PayPal's and we'll get your questions out to Roger. See you in a couple of minutes. Hey, Francis, would you like to learn another language? No, mate. Already know foreign languages perfectly. Oi, Gary. Oué. Le Biblioteca. You can't go on holiday, mate, without knowing where the swimming pool is. Le Biblioteca is the library, you idiot. Exactly. You can never be too far away from knowledge and sexually frustrated librarians. <sighs> For those of you who do want to learn a language and connect with another culture, or maybe just brush up on your Spanish for the next holiday, Babbel is the app for you. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel designs their courses with practical, real-world conversations in mind. Things you're going to use in everyday life, like finding out where the bibliotech is. Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, meaning real people. So you learn useful vocabulary and not meaningless phrases like the ones Francis keeps uttering. Babbel's teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italians, and and the other ones. Babbel is available as an app or online and your progress will be synced across all devices. Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with our promo code, which is TRIGGER. Go to babbel.com forward slash play and use promo code TRIGGER for an extra six months for free. We're even going to get Francis on it. You might learn English. Mm, that's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com forward slash play. Promo code TRIGGER. I use Babbel and look at me now. Yo puedo hablar español absolutamente perfecto. Know what I mean, Gary? Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Well, if you do, then EasyDNS are the company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, deplatform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows a bit about that. So will you in a second. Easy DNS have rock solid network infrastructure and incredible customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You'd know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Move your domains and websites over to Easy DNS right now. All you've got to do is head over to easydns.com forward slash triggered and use our promo code, which is of course triggered as well, and you will get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter 
access of easy that tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. Hello, welcome back, everybody. We're going to ask some questions of Roger and have another conversation, which has been absolutely brilliant so far. Uh, Francis, fire away. The first question is, we've got one from regular Icky Ike, and he says, I'm sure Putin doesn't believe his own propaganda, but if you're swimming in misinformation, mm. can't it corrupt your perception of reality? Could Putin absorbing a bit too much of the Kremlin Kool-Aid have led to his overreach? I think that's a pretty fair assumption, yeah. Mm. And you can see that from uh, a lot of that sort of footage of the last few weeks of... Mm. of the sort of theatre within the Kremlin of how he is presented and how he's presented with other people, that ridiculously long table, for example, mm. Mm. and then sitting there in the, in the hall, you know, distanced from his, um, from his oligarchs and his ministers and so on. Um, and this COVID paranoia that he evidently has as well, that everyone has to, you know, provide stool samples and, mm. you know, two weeks of isolation or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's insane. But I think that there's an element of that where he has whether it's just psychological or it's also it's also covid related that he's effectively isolated himself and mm. you isolated in that rather delusional world so i think there's that's quite a strong case for that being correct yeah and and if that is the case then surely doesn't that make him even more dangerous yes because it makes him the chances are that if he's isolated he becomes ever more irrational he becomes ever more erratic and therefore more likely to do something stupid yes <laughs> right <laughs> sorry francis but and i i agree absolutely yeah. you're doing to him what i did uh, when <laughs> I we know, had you, our chat you just, i saw that and you you de depressed him and i mean i i agree i, I watched that and I, I agreed with an awful lot of what you said yeah. uh steve asked what i think is actually a very fair question uh, he says of putin's three justification justifications that he gave NATO. I mean, he doesn't mention the, the, the fact that Ukraine belongs, according to Putin, to, to that part belongs to Russia. But he says, NATO, Nazis and Kosovo. We haven't addressed the Kosovo mm. precedent. Can you talk about that? Because that's not something I know a lot about. Mm. Uh, and I'd love to understand. Some people are arguing that what happened with Kosovo being split off was a precedent for what Putin is doing. Yeah. He went, well, if you're doing this, then I'm going to do this. Can you yeah, talk about I mean, that? Yeah, he, talk, he talks as well about, you know, the bombing. Tell us what Ukraine. happened in Kosovo as well, yeah? Oh, because uh, right. that, no I mean, one knows, I don't Yeah, know. well, I'm not sure I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's going back to, you know, the end of the Yugoslav Wars. Um, that was, there was the NATO, first of all, no, no fly zone, and then the bombing of Belgrade, mm -hmm. um, which was deemed necessary at the time. Um, there were obviously voices of dissent. And then the same thing with, with the creation of Kosovo, um, which to a Serbian mind, Kosovo incidentally has a sort of almost mythological mm. element. It's a mythological territory for Serbians, mm. right? Mm. For Serbs. So um, you can see there that that is something that is still a sort of running sore for, for Serbian, Serbian nationalist sensibilities. Mm. Um, and there's a close affinity between the Serbs and the Russians, mm -hmm. as you know, Pan-Slavs and all of that. And historically, there's there's always been close ties. Serbia was one of those that actually came out last week and didn't support sanctions against Russia. So you know, you can see those 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 um, links are still there. Um, but you know, if we accept that that that's an example of sort of NATO mm. overreach, it's where NATO ceased to become. In one example, it, ceased, it ceases to become that purely defensive alliance I was talking about. It actually was offensive in that case. Mm. 
um, then, you know, we can look back and say, yes, you know, mea culpa. So maybe that was the wrong thing to have done. But we were trying to, you know, it's a humanitarian mission, trying to essentially finish a civil war. Um, so that, I think, you know, is something we can argue out in the West with sort of free discussion of, 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 of events. But for then, for the Russians to use that as justification, you know, our error is allowing them to do what they're doing. The same thing as using, using the, the um, um, uh, invasion of, of Iraq, for example, and say, well, you invaded Iraq. Well, that's the most ridiculous excuse in the world. Why is that? Because Iraq, Iraq was an absolute shit show. So why would anyone want to use that as a sort of, you know, as an excuse to do the same thing? When it's it's preposterous, yeah, you know, it was a it was a mistake, absolutely. But why would you want to then go and do a mistake and claim that that's your justification for doing it? Mm. Right? Seems How much, this is something we haven't covered, and we haven't talked about the West's role beyond the NATO conversation. Mm. I, I want to talk to you about this because, as you know, in that conversation Francis and I had, mm. I was putting very strongly the case that the West has undermined its all moral authority. Yeah, there's no question about yeah, that, right? I think it has. And so even in the eyes of our fellow citizens, criticism of Russia in the situation can sound a bit hollow because of the immoral, illegal, you know, improper, whatever word you want to use, actions that we take time and time again yeah. in the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 200, 500 years. Yeah. yeah. Number one. Number two. The other thing about the West, which, as you know, you, I think we all feel strongly about, is the constant undermining of the values of our civilization mm -hmm. from the inside. And therefore, withdrawing from the world. And so we sort of hint to Ukraine that it can come and join the family of Western nations, but we don't do it properly. We just hint. We say, well, yeah, you're welcome, but we're not actually going to help you make that a reality. What is the West role, in your opinion, and what mistakes do you think we have made? that have caused this to happen or have contributed to what's happening now. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely we make mistakes. You know, that's every, every nation, every, every political entity makes mistakes. The great thing about the Western model is that we can recognize them. We can discuss them freely. Uh, we can, where necessary, vote out those responsible. We can prosecute those responsible. But we don't, do we? We don't. We don't take, you know... Tony Blair to the Hague, but, um, you know, we can vote him out of office, for example, you know, so nothing's perfect, but, you know, which system do you want to live under? Mm. You know, do you want to live under Putin's system? This is this it kind of annoys me, this knee jerk thing that you see a lot at the moment. And I, there was a great piece, Douglas Murray did a great piece today, I think it's in the Spectator. Mm. Very um, good piece. What the right gets wrong. Yeah, about talking about, you know, the American right kind of swooning for Putin. I think, mm. what, what are you wishing for yourselves here? This is ridiculous. I mean, how much, however much you find, you know, the modern uh, Western world with all of its woke, you know, nonsense in many cases, however frustrating you find that, mm. a viable alternative is not supporting an <laughs> autocratic <laughs> madman, right? The fact that you don't like that and he doesn't like that stuff yeah. doesn't make you allies, no. right? He would have you shot, yeah. mm. right? We have to understand that. And I think... It, he no, is quite good on the trans debate, though. Yeah, he is. He's, he's very <laughs> red pilled and based. But but, no, he, but but this on that point though. Yeah. I mean, this and I think we've seen this in the last week. This has been, I think, a very valid and valuable wake up call. Yes. For the Western world. Yes. To actually look at, you know, stop looking at our navels yes. and start stop talking about you know 
for once microaggressions and 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 you know transgender toilets or whatever it is and actually look at what values we hold in common and are mm. they worth defending and mm. the rest of the world has stood up in the last week last year or last week rather mm. and said yes they are worth defending yeah. mm. you know those basic freedoms democracy you know freedom all rule of law all of that stuff mm. is worth defending my big concern with what i'm observing in the last week is that look the anti anti-imperialist, anti-war, anti-establishment left has always been very open about hating the West, hating the Western values, cozying up to dictators, whether it be in the Soviet Union and Venezuela or whatever, because ideologically they're motivated by the belief that the West is evil, uh, what it does around the world is evil, and any evil that happens around the world is inevitably a consequence of Western evil. Yeah. So when Venezuela goes down the toilet, that's not because of what it's people... Sanctions. Yeah. It's sanctions. Yeah. It's all of that, right? So, and look, people, it's a free country. You believe whatever you want. And those people, some of them are great people. They're, some of them are smart. Some of them, I don't agree with them. I think they're badly wrong, but that's what they think. Mm. What hadn't occurred to me, and what I think we're starting to see now on some parts of the right, is they hate the West too now mm. because of all this work shit. All that stuff. Yeah. And so they they will side with anybody who just says, yeah, men are men and men, women are women. That to me is a pretty fucking low bar, Roger, yeah, for, for, for supporting somebody. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Women are women and men are men. But we've got we to reach further. We've got to yeah. have a bit more ambition and a bit more aspiration about who we want to be representing our values. Yeah. And if you, you know, this is the point I've been making for years now. And I'm sorry that I'm ranting, but <laughs> I feel strongly about this. It's like, you know, we talk so much about racism and sexism and homophobia in this country. Well, you want to go and look at Russia, what happens mm. to gay people there or China or whatever? Like these countries are not better. Mm. They're not better. And I say that to you if you're woke or if you're anti-woke, you've got to remember that, you know, this, you don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater. Right. And I think yeah. we're really, really in danger of doing that, yeah. particularly people who, you know, I feel it. I felt it with Francis and I were, were having a very honest conversation about this last night. You know, I think lockdown broke a lot of people's brains, mine included. Mm. I found it very difficult to to just hold myself from going over into sort of conspiracy and madness because what was happening around us made so little sense that you could, I think everyone felt a desire to kind of reach for an explanation. Mm. And if what's happening in front of you is so ridiculous, Mm. it's natural then to seek ridiculous explanations for what's happening. And that is a big concern for me in terms of the ideological space that we're now in. I agree with all of that, Constantine. The only thing I'd say again is that in the last week, the way the West has responded yes. is has been hugely heartening. I yes. think you know, for me as well. We we have, you know, rediscovered the wood for the trees. We 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 now know what we stand for, you know, and it comes back almost to that to that old sort of Polish line, you know, for your freedom and ours. Mm-hmm. You know, we are right, we're not um um sending NATO in, we're not allowing the Ukrainians to NATO, that would be kind of suicidal to, to everybody, I suspect, but we are arming the, arming the Ukrainians, we are assisting in any way possible, and everyone's shoulder, shoulder to the wheel, you know, and we, we finally, it's almost like, I think woke, is almost, woke has almost been like, a, like an autoimmune disorder, mm. you know, it's like lupus, you know, when you've got, when there's nothing else going on, yes. your body attacks itself. Yes. Right, we've suddenly found out that there is an external enemy, and we've got to concentrate on that. And hopefully it means we can concentrate a bit less on the navel-gazing mm. in the process. There's also one country who we haven't spoken about who are, I'm sure, looking at this with a very keen eye, and it's China. Mm. 
What role do you think they're going to be playing? And what do you think they're going to be taking out of this? I think they're watching very closely, mm. you know, because, of course, they have their claim to, uh, to Taiwan. Mm. Um, that's their sort of uh, piece of uh, irredenta in the world. Mm. Um, and they're going to be watching very closely as to the Western reaction. Mm. Uh, and I think, again, I think they will be uh, held back, actually, by that reaction, by the strength mm. of that reaction. Because if you look, all the stuff we've said, right, about mm. the Western world being divided amongst itself, you've got, you know, the Brexit thing, you've got the woke stuff going on. You know, the Western world in the last sort of five, six, seven years mm. has been, you know, kind of as divided as I can remember it in many ways, probably since the Cold War when we had those great chasms in sort of opinion and so on. Um, and yet in the last week, almost complete unanimity, mm. except for the fringes, you know, your Diane Abbotts and, and mm. so on, who, who still want to come out and stop the war and the mm. rest of it. And again, the analogous on the right, which we talked about, but I think they're, they're fringe voices. Mm. Real unanimity, and I said that that um, that sense of this we will defend, and I think it's admirable, and that that is a strong message to China as well. Mm -hmm. So I think they they've got a really careful watching brief on what's going on, and I think they will be their hands will be stayed by what they've seen to mm -hmm. some extent. I hope anyway. it's interesting watching Russian TV, as I said over the last week, because that tells you what the regime is thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's that's where it's coming mm -hmm. from. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of cozying up to China going yeah. on. Tremendous amount. Uh, but the Chinese have played a very closed hand on this one. They mm. haven't supported Russia outwardly. They keep talking about how there needs to be peace and whatever. Uh, so we wait and see. As you know, in the chat we had a week ago, I was perhaps a bit doom and gloom about things. Mm. I've been surprised, as you have, by the, the response from the West. And also the Chinese don't seem to have jumped on this as the opportunity to no. think this is the time to go for the jugular, no. which is a relief. I think, I, think, I think if the West had hesitated in yeah. the way that I would have expected, and certainly Germany would have, yeah. I thought Germany would, would be the break on any sort of serious yes. EU involvement. Had that happened, yes. then I think you might have seen some Chinese action yeah. elsewhere yeah. because they're just exploiting the opportunity. That's why I think they're, they're staying their hand. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of questions have flown in. Um, Kat uh, says, uh, with the 10 Aussie dollars, says, what are your thoughts on the cultural sanctions currently being implemented by the West, such as banning Russian artists and athletes? Historically, has this been useful? Mm. It's tough on the individuals themselves, um, who in some instances, you know, we don't know, but in some instances are, you know, blameless mm. in all of that. Um, so that, that there's going to be collateral damage, of course. But then you look at something like the um, the boycott in South Africa that running through the 1980s up to mm -hmm. the end of apartheid, which by all accounts, you know, that that cultural isolation, sporting isolation worked, right? Um, so it's got to be, I suppose, part of the of the toolkit of mm -hmm. the West. We have to, I think we do have to hit quite hard. And if that means, as I said, some collateral damage along the way, then... Uh, that's regrettable, but it, it probably has to be. But, but I don't imagine you'd support banning Fyodor Dostoevsky's work from as, no, as some be, Italian no, universities. No. See, I, I would argue that... Unless it, need, it needed a trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I tell you what, Russian literature from that period needs a lot of fucking yeah. trigger warnings. But um, what I would say is I think it's very important that sanctions are targeted at people who are uh, supporters yeah. and betters and whatever the right words are people who are 
allowing this to happen by their support, yeah. uh, rather than just random Russian people who happen yeah, to that, be... Yeah, that makes it sound like a lynch mob, which is, yeah. which is not... I mean, there was that example of um, was it the Munich um, conductor who was who, uh, essentially refused to come down either way, refused mm. to condemn it, and he was sacked, which I, I think is probably pretty heavy-handed. Mm. Yes, I agree. You know. I think friends of the regime are yeah, legitimate targets for absolutely. me. Having said that, you know, I mean, I understand the West's desire to do everything they can, and I, as I, I think we're both encouraged, all three of us are encouraged by the response. But also, like, I, sending oligarchs back to Russia is actually what Putin's always wanted. Mm. He wants that money back in Russia. Yeah. So I don't know how much punishment there is. And, of course, just punishing, like, Russian people in the West. Most of them are in the West because they don't like the regime. Yeah. Mm. So you're sending... Putin's critics back to Russia to punish him. Yeah. That, that and that, but that again, and it, it goes against everything that the, that you know the Western model should be. And yes, in an ideal world, you know whatever happens with Ukraine, but in an ideal world, there's has been a sort of a growing middle class in Russia mm. who have contacts and they have feelers out in the Western world. They know what the West is like. They don't necessarily buy the propaganda, um, and you need to give them a workable model for them to mm. say this is what we want Russia to be. Right. We don't want to, as you say, throw the baby out of the bathwater and start, you know, arresting people in the street and, you know, <laughs> breaking our own our own laws mm-hmm. to basically, you know, punish random Russians because that's not sending a positive message. So it has to be, you know, le- legal and and sort of commensurate. You know. So what do we do with a pro- with a channel like Russia Today? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's that's one that which has been banned in the has West. been banned yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, of course, and I, and I think that's probably fair enough. Do you? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a in a complete propaganda mouthpiece. Um, I was asked to go on it years and years ago and said, absolutely, absolutely not. And they never asked again. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably okay. That That's, that's, you know, we, this are, is we, where are in a, we are in Cold War too. And I think we have to um, accept that shutting off your enemy's propaganda is probably a, quite a good idea. It's interesting. Mm. I'm, I'm instinctively very hesitant to approve of that. Um, for the reasons that you gave earlier, actually, which is yeah, that's a very unwestern thing to do. But I think if we accept the thing that you and I both have actually said, there's an argument to be made at least. I, mm. I still, I think, I would, I would resist that temptation. But th- I think reasonable people can disagree about that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Maverick Christian, what a name! Well done, Maverick Christian. Mm. Ask the question: uh, Why did practically every expert get it wrong? on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and um, not that I'd call myself an expert, but me too. And I, and I think it's that question we, we addressed at the beginning, was that um, we're kind of thinking in terms of Putin being a rational actor. And he, and he is getting, he was getting everything he wanted mm. by saber-rattling, by, by sort of throttling mm. Ukraine and getting all of that sort of Western attention, which he wants. He wants to be reminded that Russia was a great power and a big player in the world and all of that. Um, and it seems unthinkable that he would want to launch full out, all out war. Um, it still seems unthinkable. I mean, like, like, like Constantine said, it's like, you know, you almost wake up, it's like a dream. Mm. It's mad. Um, that said, uh, there were enough voices amongst the sort of intelligence community and so on who'd seen various briefings and mm. I mean I listened retrospectively actually earlier this week I listened back to a uh, a podcast American um intelligence community podcast mm. which had three or four commentators on there and they all differed I mean they all say oh no I don't think he's going to invade because he's getting what he wants that argument that I gave 
and this predated the invasion. Um, and two of them said he wasn't going to invade, and two of them said he was. So there were voices that were saying, you know, the intelligence is such mm. that, you know, this is not a drill. Mm. So there were voices there that were saying that. Um, but as I said, I think the rest of the world just assumed that, you know, he was effectively a rational. Oh, like if you actually look at Putin's history, former head of the KGB, you look at, you know, the case of Alexander Litvinenko, you look mm. at the poisonings in Salisbury, this isn't a man who values human life very highly, particularly if it's if it means that he can eliminate them in order to get what he wants. But again, this is I'm sorry to you know say this with, with you there, Constantine, but this is kind of also um an element of the Russian psyche. Hundred percent. You know? I, I don't want people to be under any doubt about what you're saying. Yeah. It's a hundred percent true. I mean, you've got to understand this is a country that killed 20 million of its own citizens only 70 years ago yeah. or 80 years ago, whenever it was. And you go to it, you go to, I mean, the thing that was always surprises me in a way is you go to any of the um, Red Army's cemeteries, like there's three in Berlin, right, for the, from the Battle of Berlin in 45. Um, the biggest one in Treptow Park, which is, is spectacular, sort of monuments mm, and all sorts gigantic. of Gigantic. But they're mass graves. Like they're mass graves of 5,000 people each in each of these mass graves, right? So the idea of the individual, mm. and they're not repatriated. I mean, the way that Americans repatriate their dead from war as a matter of routine, um, Russians don't do that, right? Not only do they not do that, they put them into mass graves. So there are no names, right? Mm. We don't know who they are, which to a Western mind, with all of its individualism and all of that, is kind of it's completely anathema. It's mm. kind of, wow, that's, that's, that's punchy, you know. That's just the way it works. It's the way it worked in 45. It's the way it works now. And that comes direct from the Soviet lens, doesn't it? Where I, the individual is nah, not important. That's much older than that. I think it goes way back. <laughs> really? yeah. Yeah. It's much older than I'm that. Much older, yeah. And, so and you can see from? this in... Um, the long, hard winter. Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, man is... It, the individual is kind of expendable. You know, there, are, there are greater um, goals to be had, and we, we get them by moving together and if the individual falls off falls off the side then so be it it's it's that classic kind of you know um communitarian mentality that the, the community is everything the individual is nothing there's another piece to it as well which is russia is a massive country yeah. and because of that logistically it was very difficult to govern uh, and what you therefore needed is very strong central leadership to prevent the regions from becoming you know, mini tardums in which the, the local uh, uppity king would, would do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Um, and because of that, uh, this is the anecdote I always uh, use to explain this, to try and explain this to people is uh, one of the huge names in Russian history is, of course, Ivan the Terrible. Mm. Uh, he's not called Ivan the Terrible in Russian. It's not an inaccurate translation. Mm -hmm. This is a man who killed his own son in a fit of rage, who, as a kid, tortured animals, who did all sorts of atrocious things. In Russian... Textbook psychopath. Textbook psychopath. In Russian, he's called Ivan the Fearsome mm -hmm. and revered. Yeah. Stalin has a 50... Stalin has a higher approval rating in Russia today than Joe, Joe Biden has in America or Boris Johnson yeah. has in this country. Yeah. That's the mentality. And nobody in the West can understand this because you can't. You yeah. can't, if you, if you operate under the Western moral framework, it's impossible to understand people who would bury 5,000 soldiers who secured victory in the deadliest war in the history of humanity in a mass grave. Mm. 
You, you can't imagine that. Yeah. You know, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, uh, they carry on the negotiations, which I think have been rather kind of cynically led, particularly on the Russian side so far. That's a ruse to, um, to buy time, reorganize, whatever it is. Um, but anyway, at the moment, those negotiations, in an ideal world, you might see Ukraine being able to fight them effectively to a standstill or make the costs so great that Putin is ready to make some sort of deal. Right. And I think the best they could probably achieve from the Ukrainian perspective is, is a return to the status quo ante. Right? So you can have Donetsk, Luhansk, you can have Crimea, but Ukraine is allowed to exist. Now, whether it can exist with an independent sovereign government is a quite open question, but that's what it should demand, mm. right? Um, I think anything else is kind of, you know, requiring it to be in a sphere of influence, pandering to Russian paranoia is 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 a hollow hollow victory. So for the Ukraine, so um, that's an ideal scenario. I think that's about as good as it's going to get. Mm. Um, the other side of the spectrum, the you know, realistic side of the spectrum is, I think, the destruction of Ukraine and occupation of Ukraine, which is going to be bloody. Mm. Um, and Ukraine's democratic ambitions, its ambitions to join the West, Western world in general, are going to be put back by decades. Mm. So it's it's very dark. We're in a very dark place at the moment. And this is why I say this is this is Cold War Two. Mm. Um, we can't afford, I don't think, the West to to whatever happens in Ukraine when it's over, go back to some pretend normal, mm. because that would not be acceptable, and it would be a betrayal of all of those brave Ukrainians who have fought like they have, with that ambition of fighting for their so- sovereignty and their freedom, mm. and to decide their own future. If we then carry on business as usual, Wandel durch Handel, there's a betrayal of them, and that shouldn't happen. So, you know, we do need to carry on that fight. Do you think the West, I mean, we've all been surprised in the last week by the resolve of the West, but do you think if Ukraine is overrun, you know, Russia annexes the eastern and central part or installs a puppet government, um, do you think the West has the appetite to maintain these sanctions in perpetuity? I I hope so. Honestly, I hope so. Um and as I say, I don't, I don't think we can, in all conscience, go back to business as usual mm. and sort mm. of normalization. Because you, you'd, have, you'd have an effect, you know, a regime like Lukashenko in Belarus, in, Belarus mm. in Ukraine. I think that's probably the most likely outcome, which is horrible to say. Mm. Um, and to me, that is, that is a tragedy for Ukraine. And it's something that we should carry on you know carry the carry the torch effectively for the freedom of ukraine would certainly bolster our defenses on that eastern frontier you know poland has to make um you know realize that it's a it's a frontier country now um which i i said that last week in prior to the invasion it already had already has felt that way with the with belarus and with the uh the manufactured migrant crisis of of a few months ago Mm. um but Baltic states, Poland, you know, those all those NATO men, members on the eastern eastern 
fringe of Europe, we have to make sure that that is an inviolable line, mm. that no further, no step further. But that, that means, means putting NATO troops. That on means the putting troops there. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Isn't that going to be seen as an antagonistic gesture? Yeah, I think we're past that now. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're way past that. We have yeah. a, it's the same thing. You, know, you go back to the parallels. You talk about 39. You know, the, British, the British and the French prevailed upon the Poles in three days before the German invasion. They said, do not mobilize because mm. it would be antagonistic to Germany. Yeah. You know, we're past that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Roger Morehouse, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm going to lift this book again because it's it's really brilliant. The Devil's Alliance, the other stuff you've written is great as well. But this, I think this gives a little bit of a better understanding of what we're dealing with. I think it's very important for people to read this book and understand the history of that part of the world. And it's beautifully written as well. Really easy reads. So I recommend it. The Devil's Alliance by Roger Morehouse. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for watching. Uh, guys, just so you know, there will be no Raw show tonight because I'm on question time. Uh, so uh, check that out and, and boo at home and throw whatever you want to throw. Uh, but we will see you tomorrow with our Raw show and the rest of the week will be as normal. So thanks for joining us. Roger, thank you. And we'll see you very soon. Take, Take care. care and see you soon, guys. Hey, Francis, would you like to learn another language? No, mate. Already know foreign languages perfectly. Oi, Gary. Ue le biblioteca. You can't go on holiday, mate, without knowing where the swimming pool is. The Bibliotech is the library, you idiot. Exactly. You can never be too far away from knowledge and sexually frustrated librarians. <sighs> For those of you who do want to learn a language and connect with another culture or maybe just brush up on your Spanish for the next holiday, Babbel is the app for you. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel designs their courses with practical, real-world conversations in mind. Things you're going to use in everyday life, like finding out where the bibliotech is. Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, meaning real people. So you learn useful vocabulary and not meaningless phrases like the ones Francis keeps uttering. Babbel's teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italians, and, and the other ones. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with our promo code, which is TRIGGER. Go to babbel.com forward slash play and use promo code TRIGGER for an extra six months for free. We're even going to get Francis on it. You might learn English. Mm. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com forward slash play promo code trigger i use babble and look at me now yo puedo hablar espanol absolutamente perfecto know what i mean gary do you have a website or do you plan to have a website well if you do then easy dns are the company for you easy dns is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you they have a track record of standing up for their clients whether it be cancel culture de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows a bit about that. So will you in a second. Easy DNS have rock-solid network infrastructure and incredible customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You'd know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to Easy DNS right now. All you've got to do is head over to easydns.com forward slash triggered and use our promo code, which is, of course, triggered as well, 
and you will get 50% off with the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, that tells you everything you need. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.